This morning we're going to be continuing um, in our series on the, the life of Joseph. Um, so if you want to turn with me, we're going to be uh, looking at Genesis 41. Uh, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 16, and then we're going to jump down uh, to verse 25 and read to the, the end of the chapter to verse 40. Um, you'll find that on page 45 of the Pew Bibles. This is Genesis 41, uh, verses 1 to 16, and then 25 to 40. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven ears of corn, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other ears of corn sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven healthy, full ears. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream that same night, the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. We're going to skip down just to the very bottom of the page, then to verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears of corn are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless ears of corn scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. 
The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. We're going to end our reading there today. Um, thank you for, for that, Stephen, for leading us and for, for reading for us. And folks, have that passage open before you today. We'll just be in chapter 41 of Genesis today. It's been lovely to hear some people starting to talk about the the Joseph series and what God's been uh, bringing them and and saying to them through it. So let's let's hope and pray that uh, the same can happen here today. In fact, let let me just uh, ask God for his his spirit to speak to us today. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word We thank you how every part of it, Old and New Testament, uh, can speak to us, can enrich our lives, draw us closer to you, and prepare us and equip us for serving you. So we pray you'd be with us today as we uh, think about this, this moment in the life of Joseph, your servant. Amen. Amen. Um. Folks, I wonder if you'll know what I'm talking about when I say it's an interesting experience to grow up and start to reflect on your family, the family that you grew up in. Some people are smiling. Um, so when you're a kid, whatever's happening at home mostly feels normal. That's, you know, it's like Bart Simpson says, you know, um, as far as anybody else knows, this is a normal family. You know, that's, that's how all families tend to think of themselves. But as you grow older, you begin to realize that not all families are the same and that there are aspects of your own family that are a little bit unique. Each family, I think, has a story, uh, a unique way of interpreting the world, uh, a way of saying this is who we are and this is how we navigate life. And as we grow, we, we tend to try and understand that um, and come to terms with our place in it. Those of you who have ever heard me reflect on my family um, will probably remember that I have a, a real sense of, uh, I think the, the nice word is uniqueness, and the, the other way to put it is that, that my family was weird, all right? So maybe you can identify with that. We had two particular uh, reasons for that, or two layers of uniqueness and weirdness. 
for me growing up. First of all, there was our foreignness. Um, so growing up in Portadown in the 70s, as I did, uh, when you had parents called Lutz and Ermgard Ebbinghaus, um, there was always just that sense that you weren't quite the same as the other kids beside you. Um, and the kids calling me Hitler in the playground didn't help. That didn't, didn't bring me in, uh, didn't help me to feel entirely at home. So, so our family was weird because we were foreign. Uh, as if that wasn't enough, that's a pretty significant layer of weirdness. We then had the fact that we were, were Christian. Now, you might say, well, that, that's okay. Uh, you know, a lot of people in Northern Ireland are Christians. That's not that weird. My, my family's way of expressing that was weird. It was a, a pretty... So, for example, most of my childhood, we didn't have a television in our house because my mum was pretty sure that that was a, a, a terrible thing. I'm beginning to wonder if she might have been on to something. But anyway, um, it, it felt weird at the time. Um, we didn't get to go and play outside on a, on a Sunday. While other kids went to, to play, we were dragged along to gospel meetings in tents in fields around the countryside or in orange halls. So a very, um, a very strong sense of the uniqueness of our family. As I grew, I began to notice particular perspectives, particular ways in which our family thought about things. And there's, it's one of those that I want to think about with you for a second this morning. Uh, it was in my, probably in my late teens and my early 20s that I began to notice in our family a fear of success. It might sound weird if, uh, if, you don't, if you've never encountered this. Um, I'll give you, give you a couple of examples of, of where I was getting that from. So I first noticed it when uh, I was heading into upper secondary schools, so GCSEs and A-levels. Um, I, I started to do quite well at school, get good grades. And I, I remember just a, a wee, you know, rather than coming in behind you to celebrate that, um, there was a, a German phrase that I used to hear about the house whenever we were talking about this stuff. They talked about höhere Schulbildung. They'd say, look at your man with his higher, uh, higher education. You know, any time you... Yeah, I wasn't a big one for bumming up my uh, achievements or anything, but it was just a way of keeping you down, keeping you in your place. I can remember when it came to choosing A-level subjects and then finally uh, a university course to study, saying that I, I fancied to go at accounting, so a, a professional career with, which would open, open doors later into finance or, or business management, that kind of thing. I could just feel this reticence from my parents. I think from my mum in particular. She seemed to be very worried about us overreaching or, or getting ideas above our station. So over the years, I, I've tried to understand what was going on there. Um, I, I suppose I look at it and I'd say, well, my mum is aware of something important, uh, and that is the need for humility in life. Um, uh, a need to keep any pride that, that might creep in to keep that in check. So she had warned us about those things. And as I thought about how she, she reacted to any successes or promotions that we experienced, I wondered, you know, did she imagine that, that a success or a promotion 
somehow takes you away from, from God. I, I don't know. All I know is that uh, I, was a, I trained in Vancouver in Canada to be a minister, so I wasn't around for my student years. But I was a minister in Northern Ireland for five and a half years uh, between coming home from Vancouver and my mom dying. Five and a half years, and she never once chose to come and hear me preach. I think she was aware that some people were finding something helpful and were responding to my preaching, and she didn't want to, she didn't want to, I don't know, be seen to be giving me grounds for a, a pride or a big head. Enough about my family story. What's yours? In particular this morning, I need to ask you about this, this particular idea that I've been focusing in on. What is your understanding of promotion, of success, of influence? This is really important really important in a congregation like this because a lot of people here have already uh, had success, have been promoted and have significant influence and others will in the future. So we've got to get our heads around this. How are you thinking about that? Are you like my mum? You maybe haven't thought about it but, but I'm asking you now to do you have a sense that while you live a life of a humble station without a great deal of success or influence, then, then somehow you're honoring God. And that if he then chooses to promote you, that somehow you've, you've turned your back on him and chosen instead to flourish in a field or a career. Is that how you think about these things? If you do, Genesis 41 is going to come as a bit of a shock. Because in Genesis 41, we find that God promotes Joseph. He does it in God's time for God's glory and to change the world. Three things we'll notice this morning. So chapter 40, we left Joseph. Do you remember he was languishing in prison? Uh, there was that moment where he thought he was going to get out and, and he didn't because the, the cupbearer forgot to remember him to the king, to, to Pharaoh. So it's another two years now before Joseph is finally called out of his cell, the, the story that we read today. I said last week, there's a lot of dreams going on in this story. Today it's Pharaoh's turn, the, the king of the country, to have the dream. Seven skinny cows eating seven fat ones. Seven skinny heads of grain swallowing seven fat ones. In the light of what we said last week about the Egyptian fascination with dreams, it's, it's entirely natural that for Pharaoh, when he has these dreams, he's very troubled. He needs these dreams interpreted. Nobody, none of his magicians, none of his wise men, none of them can help him. Finally, and I'm sure this was just the catalyst for it. I'm sure if you picture the scene in the court, the cupbearer comes in at some point. He hears all this chat about dreams and he goes, ah, yes. Uh, do. There's a guy in prison. He helped me two years ago with a dream. 
you see God's providence in the timing here? Joseph was forgotten two years ago. And we said at the end of last week's sermon, it just wasn't the right time. It, it wasn't the time that God wanted to bring him out of that cell. And now, at this moment, he's being remembered. He's going to be called out of prison at just the right time. Just the moment when Pharaoh has had this dream, when, when something huge in Egypt is at stake. And it's then that God chooses to act and to bring him out. God's timing really is perfect. I'm looking around and I'm thinking, how many of us are waiting? Waiting for something important to happen in our lives. New job, new relationship, something to change in our families. One thing we've seen in this Joseph story a number of times now is, you know, we're, we're invited, I think, to, to trust in God's providential timing. We're invited, I think, to trust that God not only knows best what it is that we need, but also when he, he's going to bring that to us. Joseph's called from the prison much later than he would have wanted, but at just the right time. He's brought before Pharaoh. Um, we would have little sense of this these days. Egypt's not a, a big country on the world stage. Most of us hadn't paid much attention to Egypt until Mo Salah started scoring a lot of goals for, for Liverpool, and then we remembered Egypt. In, in these days, it's, it's a world superpower. So Pharaoh is one of the most important people on the planet. Uh, and in the, the Egyptian culture, they, they treat their, their Pharaoh as a representative of a god. He's, he's like a god on earth. So that's Joseph is being brought before this man. You can't, you can't bring Joseph out of a smelly prison before this guy without tidying him up. So we read about that in the narrative, clean-shaven shaven head, washed, perfumed. He's got ready to come and to meet with Pharaoh. And it's an incredible situation if you think about it. We know this story, so it doesn't seem that weird. Here you have the great Pharaoh with all of the intellectual resources of Egypt available to him, all the, the magicians and courtiers available to him. And he reaches down into the prison and pulls out a foreign slave to help him, to answer his questions. It's crazy, but there it is. I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, how do you get on when you're flattered? What does it bring out in you? When somebody says, oh, I've heard about you, and what I heard was good. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. A world superpower, he comes to you and he asks for your help. Get this right, and you can have a, a department in Pharaoh's new cabinet. Steady, Joseph. You don't want to bottle this. 
And what does Joseph say? When Pharaoh says, oh, I've heard all about you. I've heard how great you are. What does Joseph say? Can't do it. I can't do the thing that you're looking for. Whatever you've heard about me, whatever you've heard about my abilities or my greatness, it's not true. I'm not great. But I serve a God who is. And he can interpret your dream. It's another one of those moments where we just get a wee insight into Joseph's character and, and what God's been doing in him, how God's been forming him. He simply, we saw it um, in a previous story too, he simply refuses to take credit for the things that God does through him. I think that's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a thing that any one of us who follows Jesus, any one of us who's in a position in the church of Jesus Christ would want to take to heart and learn and practice. I can't do it, but I serve a God. Wonderful. Once Joseph's made it clear that he doesn't have the power to interpret dreams, but that with God's help, he can do this. He, he listens. Pharaoh tells him the dreams. He listens as Pharaoh tells him, I had these dreams, but my, my dream team couldn't help me. They couldn't do anything for me. They, they were stuck. And then he gives the interpretation. He says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Two dreams, just to give it double emphasis. This is definitely going to happen. So it's dramatic in the extreme. Here you have a Hebrew slave standing before Pharaoh, God among the Egyptians. And he's telling God what God, the real, true, and living God, is going to do. Pharaoh, you might be God around here, but here's what's actually going to happen that you couldn't see, couldn't discern, and couldn't do anything very much about. The living God is about to act here. I love what Joseph does here. He, in a sense, by interpreting the dreams, he's given Pharaoh a huge problem. What if there are seven years of famine coming? What are we going to do? So he does that thing that, that any manager wants, you know. Uh, what is it a, a manager always says to their staff? Don't bring me a problem, bring me a solution. Yeah? Well, that's what he does. He says, here's the problem, here's what's coming. There's a famine coming, but, but here's how we might deal with that. Here's the answer. Appoint a viceroy, appoint local overseers, get a national rationing system up and running. There's, some, there's a lovely balance here. Um, some people wonder what a spiritual person looks like. Is a spiritual person, you know, they're good at spiritual stuff, but they're rubbish at, at real life? No. Joseph is open to the Spirit of God and is able to do wonderful things, interpreting dreams, but he's also a strategist. 
he's a smart guy. He uses his gifts and he makes plans and he gets stuff done. That's what the Spirit of God does in a person, releases all their gifts. I want to stop here for a, a wee second again and just ask this, this willingness that Joseph had to interpret a dream, first of all for the cupbearer, then the baker, and now for Pharaoh. I'm just wondering, do we have anything to offer to the people around us who are struggling to interpret life? They just, they can't make sense of it. Members of our family, colleagues, and work, they need guidance. They need people to talk to. to, You you know what I'm talking about? This happens occasionally, even in our ultra-independent culture. Moments arise where people want someone to talk to and want some help and some advice. Are, Are we the people to come to? The wisdom of the living God indwelling us in such a way that people think, goodness, I, I just need to know what I, I just need to know what Stephen thinks. Stephen thinks I, I've talked to him, Stephen thinks well about this stuff. I'm gonna pick his brains, ask him what he thinks. Folks, wisdom is a big part of what God gives to his people. It's a big part of the biblical tradition that we've forgotten about. I, I'm not quite sure why. Maybe need to trace that sometime. One of the big things they said about Jesus was about his wisdom. Do you remember when he, te- when he was teaching early in the Gospels? Crowds would listen to him and they would say, where did this man get this wisdom? So followers of Jesus Christ want that. We want to be wise because that's who he is. And when we, when we grow more like Jesus, we become wiser. We want to be just hungry after wisdom. Proverbs, the writer to the Proverbs, he says this, Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. What a blessing it would be to our, our family, our friends, our, our neighbors and our colleagues, if, if, we, if we had wisdom increasing in us and, and could share it with others. So Joseph's been called out of prison. He's interpreted Pharaoh's dreams for him. We're nearly done. Pharaoh is impressed. Look at verse 37. I love this scene. This is one of my favorite scenes in the whole Joseph story. You have this boy, this 30-year-old Hebrew slave, shaved up, washed up, standing in front of the, one of the biggest political institutions in the world. He's, he's interpreted a dream for them, but I love what Pharaoh says about him. They need someone to come and do the thing that Joseph said. They need someone to come and run the country for them, effectively. And Pharaoh just looks at him and he says, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. Now that's what I want people saying about me. Wherever I go. Can we find anyone like this woman? One in whom is the Spirit of God. 
These are pagans. These people don't even know God. They, they don't know the God of Israel. But there's something so winsome, so wise, so magnetic in, in Joseph that they can't help but be drawn to him. Do you remember we said this? We've said this a couple of times recently. You can't get away from this in the Joseph story. We said it with the kids. God is with him, with Joseph, and people can see it. I promise I won't say that next time I preach. I think that's three in a row. Joseph, when you went into Potiphar's household, he put you in charge of his household. Joseph, when you went into prison, before long you were running the prison. Joseph, you've come out and you're now standing in the court of Egypt. Would, would you mind running Egypt for us? Just run the whole thing. We're talking here this morning about your theology of promotion and success. Joseph has them all now because God has given them to him. God's given them to Joseph for a purpose. He's done it in his time. He's given it for a purpose. And it's so that Joseph can save the world. I've deliberately chosen that language. I've gone a bit full-blown. God's going to use Joseph to save the world. But we'll talk more about that next week. So back to our opening question. What, what is your theology of success, promotion, influence? Is it something for Christians to be nervous of or afraid of? Nervous, yeah. Just be careful. It takes a very godly and a very mature person to handle power and influence. Many people have failed. But don't let's take the view that if I'm promoted and do well, that somehow it means I've cut my ties with a, a, a connection with Jesus, that I'm somehow less with him. I'd say, see it the other way. The more responsibility he gives you, the more you need him. The more you need his grace, his help, his wisdom. Goodness, you wake up every day thinking, how am I going to do this without him? Folks, what is your theology of success, promotion, and influence? When you read this Joseph story, chapter 41 of Genesis, could it be that God is raising you up to change the world? To change your part of the world? Like this man. If we pop that slide up. Not many of you were here a few weeks ago at an evening service where we had a commissioning for David Montgomery for Monty to his new role in IFES. If you were, you would have heard uh, Lindsay Brown, the speaker that evening, tell the story of Sir Fred Catherwood. Sir Fred was born in Castle Dawson, all right? So he, you know, that's, a, that's as Northern Irish a place as, you know, anybody from Castle Dawson or nearby? Where is Castle Dawson? It feels like it's, yeah. So it's a, you know, that's where Sir Fred is from. He qualified as a chartered accountant, 
Throughout his uh, business career, he was the chief ex executive of Constant, Constant Construction, the managing director of British Aluminium and of John Lang. He, he played many roles in politics. He was appointed as the head of the National Economic Development Council, and he was one of the first conservatives to be elected to the, um, to the European Parliament. And he was vice president of that European Parliament from 89 to 92. And it was in this role that he played one of these key world-changing contributions. While he was vice president of the European Parliament, that overlapped with the end, you know, the Glasnost perestroika thing in Russia and the start of the, the new Russia, late 80s, early 90s. Russia was transitioning very dramatically at that time. It was discovering what kind of a country it was going to be. And, and that ended up having implications for the church because what you had was a country rewriting its constitution. What kind of a place are we going to be? And you have the traditional Orthodox Church, which would have had such a, a strong place in Russian culture for, for so long. They were lobbying the, the parliament to restrict the rights of evangelicals, to, to take away freedoms that they had, and, and really to hinder their, their flourishing and their growth. The way things worked in politics in Russia in those days, uh, Two approvals were needed for any new legislation to be acted, enacted. One was the, the parliament itself, but also the, the leader uh, also had a role in that. So the leader at the time was Boris Yeltsin. So in this moment, the future of evangelicalism in Russia, that huge country, it lies in the hands, effectively, of Boris Yeltsin. Twice this issue was brought before him, and twice he defended the place of evangelicals in the new Russia. Why? Because Sir Fred Catherwood, vice president of, the, the, of Europe, came and spent time with him and persuaded him that evangelicals were no threat to the new Russia, but in fact they'd be a great blessing to the country if they were allowed to flourish and thrive. History shows that over the next few years, the church in Russia grew four or five times over in, in the next few years. Not bad for a guy from Castle Dawson. Hmm? What's the Lord raising you up for? Don't fall, please don't fall into the, the usual silly idea that he's raising you up to give you loads of wealth and prestige and to make you a big shot in your own mind. Please don't go there. There's nothing godly in that. Ask a different question. What, what's the Lord raising me up for? What does he want to use me for? How could he be using me to change the world?